This week, we're looking at angels and demons. This is the only one, I know it's a chronological teaching, this is the only one that kind of probably is out of chronological order. Um, We're going to see today the Bible indicates that angels were probably created before the physical world. Um, But I really liked the placement of it here because we're about to see Lucifer uh, come onto the scene um, back in, in our Genesis account. And so we wanted to put this in here. And now up until this point, it's been all good, right? God is making stuff, and he's calling everything he made good, right? It's all good. Adam and Eve are naked. They're running around, having a great time, unashamed. It's a big garden party. And at this point, only fruits and veggies, right? There's those trays. We're not carnivores yet. Uh, that's to come. Things do get a little bit better. Uh, Adam's naming all the animals. Um, they are just hanging out with their maker. It's all good. But like we know with any good story there's a plot twist. And we're going to see today how God made the angels, and then one of those angels becomes our story's bad guy. He becomes our story's villain. And so what we're going to look at this morning is that God, we're going to look at angels, that God made the angels. He made them to serve him. He made them good. And then we're going to look at that one particular angel, angel Lucifer. We're going to look at his rise, his fall, and then his subsequent judgment. So, first of all, though, we gotta, we gotta get rid of some of our misconceptions about angels. I don't know about you, but growing up in the church, when I hear angels, this is the fierce, uh, angelic, glorious creature that comes into my mind, okay? It just strikes fear in the heart of you, doesn't it? Now you can see why everybody was terrified when they saw angels. So we have images like this, these doughy-eyed little angels, or maybe you think about your grandma's wallpaper, okay? And, and these chubby, sort of angelic orchestras that I'm sure play really lame music. And this is kind of what we have in our minds when we think angels, okay? And, or maybe your mind goes to some of what Hollywood has taught us about angels, and you think that they only exist to help baseball teams win the pennant, right? Like that's what the purpose is. Or maybe you go to the other side and we think of our misconceptions of demons. Uh, a lot of times we think of them as these little cute little, uh, little creatures. We dress our children in devil costumes. I don't recommend that. Um, or we have these horrible sort of nightmarish ideas and images. And I'm, it's a family-friendly sermon. And so we're not going to put, uh, trust me, Google images will freak you out. Don't go there. Um, but we also have these horrible images of what demons can look like as well. Or, or perhaps you have that idea of the, you know, the angel on the one shoulder and the demon on the other shol- shol- uh, shoulder, and they're fighting over um, your mind and what they want you to think about. Well, today we want to answer the questions, what, what do we know from Scripture about angels? What do they look like, and what is their purpose, and, and what does this have to do with us? So that's the direction we want to go with this. So first of all, let's look at angels. We know from Scripture that God made angels. Uh, Psalm uh, 148 tells us this. It says, praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Why? Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. God, just like every other part of creation we've looked at, spoke into being angels, and they, they were created. And because he made them, they worship him. We also see in Colossians 1 that it says that God made all, Jesus made not only all the visible things that we see, but he also made all the invisible things that we can't see, including angels. And John 1, 3 says, nothing was made that he didn't make. And so we know from these scriptures, it implies that God created the angels just like everything else. And then we look and we say, okay, well, he created the angels. Well, how many angels are there? We look in, in Revelation 5. 
And, and, and John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So we say, well, what does myriad mean? Um, in the Greek language, it, it meant 10,000. In fact, the King James says 10,000 of 10,000. But really, it goes beyond that. See, this was the biggest word that the Greek language had a word for to describe numbers. So they just used the biggest number. John used the biggest number that he knew. It's like when you're fighting as a little kid, and you're like, no, I love the Ninja Turtles infinity. Well, I love them infinity squared. You know, it's just like the biggest number that you could come up with. And really, the other and probably better definition of myriads is an innumerable multitude. So all I can tell you is there's a lot of stinking angels, all right? We're talking millions and millions of angels, more than we can number, And we also know from scripture that angels, they don't procreate, and they also don't die. So whatever number there was when God first spoke them into existence, that is the fixed number of angels that exist, is what we infer from scripture. And it's a huge number. So when did God, when did God create these angels? Um, we, we cannot say dogmatically, but you look at the passage in Job, and it gives us a clue. Uh, Job said, were, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? This is God talking to Job. He says, you weren't there. And then he talks a little bit more about it. And then down in verse 7, he goes, as the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. So there's this implication that as God's creating the physical universe, the angels are there celebrating. So first of all, that tells us that that, that he created the angels before physical creation, if they're rooting them on. Then I also love this scene of just kind of the angels being God's cheerleaders, shouting for joy at what he's making, right? G-O-D, G, yeah, right? Who's good? He's good, yeah. Go God. Anyway, um, I don't know, sorry. Uh, What... What do they look like? It's another question. We don't, we don't get this in detail. And like we said, there's a lot of misconceptions. But we have a few kind of images that Scripture paint for us. We do know that they're spirits. And like God, they don't have, they're not limited to physical bodies. But there are times when Scripture paints a picture for us. A revelation of chapter 4. Each of these living beings had six eyes. And their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. I'm sure... We know whatever God has made is good and beautiful, but that sounds disgusting, okay? That just sounds, sounds disgusting. And then Daniel 10, and I love this, and we don't have time to read the whole passage, but go to Daniel chapter 10, and it's this awesome image of this angel who's flashing like lightning, and it's just this glorious image. And then it says all of Daniel's buddies, when they just hear, they don't even look at him, but they hear this angel, and they flee in terror. And then Uh, Daniel gets a look at this angel and he starts getting clammy. He starts freaking out. And then it says the angel speaks and Daniel faints and falls over. Like that is, so this is not the precious moments, chubby angel babies that we think of in the cloud. These are in time and time again in scripture when there is an encounter with a human and an angel, the human is terrified. Not because they're mean or, or after them, but because of how awesome and glorious, just like if we saw God's face, we would fall down dead. So these, these amazing creatures, and, and we do know they don't have bodies, but there are times when they come to the earth in human form. Genesis 18, um, we see when, when the angels come to Lot, they come and they look like men. Perhaps, perhaps God did that so that they'd be able to relate with them on an easier level. But what we do know is regardless of their form, we know that angels can only be in one place at one time, unlike God, who can be everywhere, is everywhere, all the time. God is greater than the angels. 
All right, so secondly, the angels were made to serve God. The angels were made to serve God. We know, as we've looked at the order of creation, that God is a God of order, right? Everything he's done. It is not chaotic. There is structure, and there's meaning, and there's purpose. And it's the same with the angels. It's not just millions of angels just running around, right, controlling the asylum, right? This is God. He's got rankings. He's got order. He's got structure to the angels. In fact, we see that there are different types of angels and different types of jobs ascribed to those angels. We see cherubim. We see seraphim. We see archangels. And while they're not super specific on what each one of them do, um, we do see in scripture that there is order and there's rankings among the angels. We know that the word angel, the Greek word for angel, what that word means is servant or, or messenger. And this is what the angels were created for, to serve God. We see this in Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, you his angels, his, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. You carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. The angels were created to serve God. So how do they do that? What are some specific ways? Well, one, the first one's the coolest. They were created to praise and worship God. And you see no more, uh, a bunch of scripture references there. Uh, the angels were created to worship God. That is their purpose. And you know what the coolest thing is, guys? That's our purpose as well. We were created to worship and ascribe how worthy God is. They were also created as messengers of God. The word insinuates messenger. And we see, you know, the birth account of Jesus. The angels come and they give messages to um, Joseph and Mary and to Zechariah. They're telling what's coming. But they don't always bear good news. Sometimes the angels bear bad news. They're also sent to announce and administer God's judgment. You read in Revelation 7 through 9, it's the angels who are telling of what's coming and the ones administering God's judgment on a sinful world. We remember, if you remember last week, I said, when I made that peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it belongs to me, and I can do whatever I want with it. I'm greater than that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. God is the creator of everything, including the angels, and therefore he is the owner of them. God is greater than the angels. He made them. He is in charge. He is in control. He decides their purpose. He gave them life. Hebrews 1 says angels are only servants of God. And it paints this picture to show how much greater Jesus is, how much greater God is than these angels he created. And the third point, final point for angels, is that God made them good. He created them. He created them to serve him, and he made them good. We know what, what fruit comes from an apple tree, okay? Yeah, I know we're from Alaska, so that's a little foreign to us. We've read it in a book, okay? But apples come from apple trees, right? The root, the kind of tree, determines the kind of fruit that a tree bears. Jesus said this in Matthew seven eighteen: A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. And we've said, and we've showed it over and over again in Genesis, God is good, and therefore he can only create what is good. Genesis 1.31, then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And so God is good and right, and therefore everything he creates is good and right. And this is so important to understand. Every angel that God made, every angel God made was created good. But just like one of those apples from the apple tree, can spoil the whole barrel. One rogue angel can change everything. And we have our first plot twist in the story. Lucifer comes onto the scene. First thing we want to do is we want to look at Lucifer's rise. 
Now, there are two main passages that talk about Lucifer, uh, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Now, we also, if you go and you read these passages in their entirety, you're going to see that Ezekiel is talking about the king of Tyre, and, and, and Isaiah is talking about the king of Babylon, okay? And you go, well, why are we then saying that this is talking about Satan or, or Lucifer at that time? Now, there are scholars who disagree, and some say that this is a reference to Lucifer as well, and some say it's not, okay? And that's something we've got to sort out, you know, between us and the Lord as, as we read Scripture. But there are many times in Scripture, and we see this all over the time, all over the place, especially in prophecy. This is what we call a dual prophecy, which means that it can be talking about one thing right now and another thing that's coming down the road. And we see this all over the place. You look at Isaiah 7, verse 14, when it talks about the virgin birth, and she'll give son, uh, birth to a son and name him Emmanuel, which means God's with us. Now we know, and we read that every year at Christmas, that's talking about Jesus, the one who's coming, the Savior. But it was also an immediate reference to a child that was going to be born, and it was going to show the king Ahaz that Assyria was coming and was going to take Israel into captivity. So it's a dual prophecy. It was talking about something that was coming later and now. And this one, many believe, is a reference to kings right then in that contemporary time and a past reference to Lucifer. So we come into it with that open-mindedness, but we want to look at what these passages have to tell us about Lucifer and his, and his rise. So uh, Isaiah 14, 12, it calls Lucifer by name. This is the only passage in scripture that uses Lucifer's name, and it means, in the Latin, it means morning star. The King James Version actually says, O Lucifer, son of the morning. In Hebrew, it was a proper name. That's why we believe it's his name as Lucifer. The ESV says, O day star, son of dawn. So what we see here is God has named him, and then we see a couple things in this early passage here. First of all, God created Lucifer beautiful. Look at this. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. So contrary to popular opinion, Satan was not, Lucifer, when he was first created, did not have the, the, what we picture, the Halloween costume of the, the, the pitchforks and the horns and the painted on crooked eyebrows that show that he's mean. He was created beautiful. He's called the morning star. So God creates Lucifer beautiful. He also creates him with a purpose. Verse 14 of Ezekiel 28, I adorned and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. Lucifer here is ascribed to as, as a cherubim. And the cherubim's job was to, was to act as a guardian, usually a guardian of God's holiness. And so here he is on God's holy mountain, probably one of the highest ranking angels from what we know about cherubim and their rankings. And then finally, he created him beautiful with a purpose, and he created him good. Ezekiel 28, 15. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created. Just like everything else in creation, God made Lucifer good. He created him good. And just like Adam, he was created by a good God who gave him everything that he needed and beyond. He created him with surpassing beauty, with this amazing purpose and in the job that he had. He created him to have a relationship with himself, God did. But then Lucifer makes a choice. He makes a poor choice. We'll look at Lucifer's fall. Ezekiel 28, 15. It says, you were blameless in all you did from the day you were created. But then look at what he says next. Until the day evil was found in you. So where was evil found? 
we see here, it didn't come from God. We know that we, we've said God is good, and he, he only creates what is right and good because of that, because that's his character. And we said last week, and the same thing is true with the angels, God created both humans and angels with a choice. A choice to either serve him or not, to obey him or to disobey, to worship him or not, to depend on him or depend on themselves. See, God didn't want robots. He did not want to create angels or humans that just, you are holy, you are holy, I love you, I love you. Just like a chip that was inserted and kind of forced you. Just like none of us want a friend who has to be your friend because their parent made them be your friend. You want someone who will choose to be your friend. God wanted the angels to choose to serve him, to choose to worship him. But he says evil was found in Lucifer, an evil choice. So what happened here? And I imagine, take a little bit of artistic license here, but you imagine Lucifer standing on the mountain of God. And imagine what would that be like? To be in the very presence of God. Here you are guarding his holiness. And there God is in his presence. This is the, the, the greatest thing you could ever imagine. Something we have to look forward to one day. For believers when we die. Is to be in the presence of God. And Lucifer has that. But then he catches a glimpse of himself in the mirror. He goes, dang. I look good. Right? Look at me. And look at, man. Have I been working out? Like, I'm looking, oh, where, where's God's, where's God? He's that way, right? You know, look, look over here and look at, look at my job. Look how important I am. Like, God really needs me. And what he does is he takes his eyes off of God. And he places them on himself. And he says words that will change the course of history. Isaiah 14, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And these five I will statements show that Satan is not, or Lucifer at this point, is not content with God being God. He wants to be God. And when we, when we try to define evil, it's a tough thing to get your mind around, but the, the, the way I like to explain evil is it's anything different from God and what God wants or what God agrees with. So if our definition, remember we said our definition of good is, is, is God. It's whatever is like God, whatever is of God, whatever is from God, whatever God wants, whatever God agrees with, whatever God says is right. Why did God create the angels? He created them to worship him and serve him. And Lucifer is not God. He was made to worship and serve God like the rest of creation. But instead of serving God, he wanted to be served. Instead of worshiping God, he wanted to be worshiped. He longed for the glory that belonged to God. And this is the sin of pride. This is the sin of pride. And C.S. Lewis, he talked about pride. And we think about pride. I like in the English, you know, what's in the center of pride? It's I. Literally, the letter I is in the middle of the word pride. It's about me. And C.S. Lewis said it's the, the essential vice. It's the vice or the sin that leads to all other vice. He said it's the utmost evil, the complete anti-God 
state of mind. Augustine said it's the mother of all sin or the beginning of all sin. Pride is at the foundation of, of every sort of evil. So, so what is pride? And my, my favorite definition of pride, I think it's the best way for me to think about it, is it's a preoccupation with self. Pride is a preoccupation with one's self. And we see this with, with Lucifer and Ezekiel. Look at what he says. Your rich commerce, okay, the, his, the, his possessions, that led you to violence and you sinned. Your heart was filled with pride. Why? Because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. I want to see this echoed in Genesis chapter 3. But Lucifer, he chooses the gifts that God gave him over the giver, God himself. Instead of saying, thank you, God, for making me beautiful. Thank you, God, for making me powerful. Lucifer looks at himself and he goes, I want to be the most beautiful, the, the most powerful. I want to be like God. And, and, and that's the nature of pride. C.S. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity. I'm going to quote him a lot today. He says, pride is essentially competitive. And here's what he means. He unpacks this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only of having more of it than the next man. So here's what he means. Pride is not, I want to be rich. That's greed. It's, it's not pride. Pride says, I want to be richer than you. Pride says, I want to be funnier than you. It says, I want to be, I'm going to be smarter than you. I want to be, and put it where we live, a lot of us as Christians, I want to be a better Christian than you. I want to be more religious than, than you. And it's this game where we want to put ourselves at the top. And Satan was not content to let God be God. And in his pride, he saw he was potentially the most beautiful creature that God had made. The most intelligent creature God had made. But he says, that's not enough. There's still one who is more beautiful than me, who is smarter than me, who is more intelligent than me. And that's what I want. I want to be on top. Now, if you think God took that sitting down, you crazy. Lucifer's judgment. Ezekiel 28. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. What was God's reaction? What did God do? How did God respond? What did God think of his pride, which is the most important thing about anything? What does God say about it? What does God think about it? And God says in in Proverbs, it says that God hates pride. It says he hates a proud look. God hated Lucifer's sin, and he banishes him from his presence. Now listen, this is not God being insecure about being God. This is not him going, oh man, Lucifer's going to try to kick me off my throne, and I don't want that to come. I'm God. I need to be God. I need to get him out of here. He's not threatened. But the reason that he had to expel Satan, or Lucifer still at this point, from his presence is that perfection, by its very nature, Presence, uh, perfection by its very nature demands the absence of imperfection. And here, here's my illustration. If I shine a light into a dark room, wherever the light is, there's not what? There's no darkness. Dark, wherever, the, wherever the dark is, there is no light. And wherever there's light, there is no darkness. Light and dark inherently cannot coexist. 
And it's the same way with God's holiness. God is holy, and therefore, by definition, he cannot be in the presence of anything that is not holy like he is holy. And so he banishes Satan. But notice here, just kind of a little bit of a side note, Isaiah 14, uh, this is interesting. In verse 13, he goes, You said in your heart, you said in your heart, I will ascend. Notice this is, this is not speaking to Lucifer actually doing anything at this point. The sin was in his heart. It was in his thoughts. And that's where sin starts. That's why Jesus said if you look at a woman with lust, it is idolatry. If you hate someone in your heart, it is murder. And God being all-knowing, he knew Lucifer's heart. He knew his thoughts. And that's where the sin started. And that's where the sin was judged before he ever acted on that rebellion. But of course, Satan does act on the rebellion. He's not going down without a fight. Revelation 12. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon. His tail swept away one third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. So Satan picks this fight with God, and he gets a third of all the angels. And we talked about how many angels there are. So he gets this huge horde of angels, a third of the angels, to fight God. And if you're one of these angels, like, what are you thinking, right? Like, why are you siding with Lucifer? You know God is, is the all-powerful one. He's going to win this fight. Why would you side with a losing um, contingent? But that's pride, isn't it? Pride is not logical, and it's not wise. It's foolish. And they joined in Lucifer's delusion that it's better to be your own God than to let God be God. And today on earth, billions of people are making the same foolish, illogical choice to side with Satan, to side with Lucifer. Let's not make the same foolish decision. But isn't that the nature of sin? We stare, we stare logic in the face. And I go, I know that looking at pornography is not going to satisfy me. I've walked this road. I know it's not going to give me what I think it's going to give me. And I know the destruction that it leaves in its wake. But but we stare logic in the face and we still do it because it's not about logic, it's about desire. And we always do what we most want to do, regardless of the ramifications, regardless of how foolish and destructive it is. And Lucifer, overall, he knew that God was stronger than him. But he wanted that glory, and he acted on his desire. And I love this. John Milton said it this way. Satan would rather be the king of hell than the servant of heaven. And how many times in our lives are we guilty of the same thing? I'd rather be the king of my own hell than a servant of God. Erwin Lutheran, another guy, he said, in, in a, and I like this quote, in a realm beyond our grasp, a glorious creature chose to take a cosmic gamble that would backfire. I'm going to try to kick God out of his throne. I'm going to try to take over. And it completely backfired on him. And for now, Lucifer and his followers have been cast down to the earth. And they've been given these new names. And he's no longer Lucifer. He's no longer the bright shining star. He's called Satan, which means an adversary or an opposer. Used that way 51 times in scripture. 35 times he's referred to as the devil. 
or the diabolos, which means the false accuser or a slanderer. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And those who follow him are called the demons or, or evil spirits. We often see reference. So Satan now opposes God. He, he works on earth as God's adversary to lie and to deceive people. We're going to see this next week in the garden. What Satan is going to do is try to deceive Adam and Eve into the same delusion that he has bought into in his pride. And in the end, there's going to be this epic battle between Satan and his followers. He's already been kicked out, but there's going to be this one last fight that, that seals Satan's fate forever when God casts him, spoiler alert, God wins, and he casts him into the lake of fire. We see in Matthew 25, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Uh, Revelation 20, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. You see, it, it, it's going to be a war, but it, it, there's no contest in this war. I was thinking about this. It's like my nephew Ray. Here is the two of us, totally the same level of maturity. Um, and Ray's in this phase. He's two years old right now, and he loves to fight you. So he'll come up, and he's like, come on. Pew, 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 pew. And he starts hitting you, like, down in the knees or whatever. And you, you just kind of look at him, and it's like, if I wanted to, I could just... And you're done, right? Like, I could totally take that two-year-old, right? There'd be no problem. So we could fight, and we could pretend to fight and have fun, but if I wanted to, I could totally wreck his world, right? I mean, it would not be a struggle. It would not be, it would not be, it would not leave anything to the imagination of who's going to win that fight. And we've said the same thing here. God is all-powerful. He is supreme and sovereign. No one's beating God. No one is more powerful than God. So Satan and his millions of cohorts can come toward God, and he looks at him, and he just goes, <laughs> right? Just wipe him out with his breath. And here, here's the implications. Two things and we'll be done. Number one, do not fear Satan. Do not fear Satan. C.S. Lewis, once again, he said this at the, at the opening statement of his book, Screwtape Letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. So the one error that we can make is to not even believe in the, in the spiritual realm that there are demons, that there is a Satan, when Scripture t clearly tells us, 1 Peter 5, 8, stay alert. Why? Pay attention because the devil is roaming, looking for those to devour. So this is a real thing. We're not playing games here. Satan exists, and we need to believe that he does exist. And yet the other error says the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And don't we see people going the other way? Where they become obsessed with the demon world and about Satan. Or we are completely terrified of Satan and what he could do to us or what a demon could do to us. When we know, we just looked at this, we know the outcome. God has already defeated Satan. And, and once and for all, he will beat him at the end of all times. We don't have to be afraid because we have one who is greater. And, and Martin Luther said it this way. He said, the devil is God's devil. The devil is God's devil. And he doesn't mean that he created sin. But what he's saying is that, that even Satan cannot act outside of the operating power and plan of God. You remember the story of Job when Job is attacked by Satan and all these terrible things happen to him. That wasn't God like, oh, I missed that one. He has to come into God's throne room and God gives him permission to do what he's done. 
God knows everything, and he decided in his wisdom, before we were even created, to create Lucifer, knowing full well what's going to happen. And listen to me, Satan and his demons do not operate outside of the ultimate plan and power of our sovereign God. And finally, so do not fear Satan, but secondly, don't become like Satan. We said that pride is a preoccupation with self. And some of you, some of us might be thinking, well, I, I don't really like, I don't identify. That doesn't, that doesn't resonate with me. I'm not, try, I'm not an ambitious person. I'm not an aggressive person. I'm not trying to get everyone to think about how awesome I am. I actually don't want the spotlight at all. Well, that's not all that pride is. Pride is a preoccupation with self. And so some of us are thinking how amazing we are and how we want to be better than others. But some of us are flooded with self-pity. And, and shame, and insecurity, and all we think about is how much worse we are than everybody else. But it's the same root, because pride is a preoccupation with self. So whether it's arrogance or insecurity, the, the root issue is that our eyes are on us. And the point is, I need to get the eyes off of myself and behold my glorious, all-powerful, magnificent God. And that's what C.S. Lewis recommends. He says, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. If my eyes are down here on this earth, if I'm looking around and just trying to compare myself with other people, if I'm focused on myself, then I am missing the most glorious image that there is to behold himself. And so we want to know that the test that we can run, am I living in the presence of God? Are my eyes on him? This is what C.S. Lewis would say. He said, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. He says it's better to forget about yourself altogether. See, the good news is, the gospel is, we see, G we see God, we see how holy he is, and in response, just like Isaiah, we see how sinful we are, but then instead of that turning us towards shame, an inward focus, it turns us to Jesus, the one who is our righteousness on our behalf. And to know if we're in the presence of God or not, we just say, where are my eyes? Are they on him? Am I living this life? Am I just every day seeing how great God is and seeing God in other people and in the things that he's doing? And my prerogative is to see, show other people, help other people, point other people to the greatness of God? Or am I just playing this game where I'm thinking about everything about what are people thinking about me? How great I am or how terrible I am? Who is that we're looking at? Who are we seeing and who are we savoring? God is God. That position's already been taken. And Jesus bought us back from sin so that we could serve and worship God as he created us to be, just like he had created Lucifer to be. And next week, Satan has now been cast on the earth and he's looking around and he spots a woman and he spots a fruit tree. And the course of human history is about to change forever. Let's pray. Father God, I confess uh, my own pride, how easy it is to get caught up in things of myself. And God, for some of us in this room, as we're hearing this, and what's being brought to our attention is our own arrogance, and, and how whatever it is that we're doing, whether it's at work, are we the best, co best worker, or you know, we're comparing ourselves and how much better we are as parents than other parents, or whatever game it is that we're playing, and, and we think that we're on top, Lord, humble us. Lord, there are others of us who just look and see how horrible we are, and we are racked with shame and guilt and self-pity and insecurity about who we are and our bodies and our downfalls and our mistakes and our sins. 
God, I pray that you'd pick up our chin and that we'd behold you. And for both the arrogant and the, and the insecure, God, I pray for the grace to take our eyes off ourselves and to behold you. And as we worship through these next few songs, as we take of communion this morning, when we take our eyes off of ourselves, God, and when we see you, behold you for who you really are, and may our worship, may our worship be the result of seeing the good God, the only God, the only one who is worthy of looking at, of seeing and savoring and worshiping. We can only come to you in the name of your Jesus, your son Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.